0: Spirit Catholic Radio, KVSS, Catholic Radio for the Christian community. Good morning and welcome. You're tuned in to Spirit Mornings with Bruce McGregor and...
1: Chris McGregor. And
0: today, Chris, a real honor to have with us Stephen Mosier, who is president of the nonprofit Population Research Institute and is widely recognized as one of the world's leading authorities on the population question. Steve was named president of the Population Research Institute in 1996 by Father Paul Marks, who founded that organization in 1989. Steve is also the author of the best-selling A Mother's Ordeal, One Woman's Fight Against China's One Child Policy, among other books. His articles, numerous as they are, have also appeared in the Wall Street Journal, Reader's Digest, the New Republic, National Review, Reason, and many other publications. Stephen is with us here this morning to talk about his latest book called Population Control, Real Costs, Illusionary Benefits. Steve, good morning and welcome to the program. Again, an honor to have you with us. We appreciate your taking the time.
2: Well, thanks for having me on the show.
1: Steven, this particular book, Population Control, Real Costs, Uh, Illusionary Benefits, is extraordinary. I think each chapter could be a book in itself. And as I read it, it was fascinating, but yet very nightmarish. Have we really done this to ourselves? I mean, that's the question that keeps coming back to me. Have we really done this, not only to ourselves, but to the world?
2: Well, sadly, there was a hysteria about overpopulation in the 60s and 70s, led by people like Paul Ehrlich, my former colleague at Stanford University. And as a result, uh, government programs were put in place that still exist today. International organizations like the U.N. Population Fund were created to pursue an anti-people agenda, and uh, the laws that were passed uh, mandating uh, our aid agency uh, engage in what's called population stabilization programs still exist. And, you know, once once these things are put in place, uh, once the laws are passed and the institutions are created, they, they sort of take on a life of their own. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's, it's long past time uh, for those laws to be changed, those organizations to be eliminated, But uh, who's going to turn out the lights at the U.N. Population Fund? I don't know.
1: Well, I would hope that it happens sooner than later, just given the damage they've already done to the world. And I think you chronicle that so well, especially in that opening chapter, where you give us a sense of what's exactly happening in the world. And I thought one of the most provocative lines was that 18 countries have more coffins than cradles.
2: Well, Europe today, I think, is a snapshot of the world's future. Uh, Europe is literally dying, the whole continent, from Ireland in the west all the way to European Russia in the east, uh, is averaging 1.3 children per couple. You need Mm 2.1 to maintain a a stable population. Mm -hmm. They're well below that. In fact, so far below that that Europe's population is going to shrink dramatically in the decades to come. you know, in a, in a world of falling fertility, because it's not just Europe, it's the rest of the world as well, uh, we don't need uh, the population controllers to go into the bedrooms of, uh, of couples and, and tell them uh, how many children they should have or shouldn't have.
1: It is alarming because in that particular section on Europe, the term the white pestilence is one that you used, you know, not since the Black Death, not since the plague has Europe been struck with such a devastating population trauma.
2: Well, the bubonic plague in, in 1345 uh, swept away about a third of the population of Europe. But this current white pestilence, this this uh, refusal on the part of uh, of, of post-Christian, uh, post-modern uh, secular Europeans to, to welcome children into their midst, is going to take out one third of the population um, well before the end of this century.
1: And as you chronicle, it seems as though those lands that have fostered this have been those that have been prosperous and educated.
2: Well, it seems it seems to me that as our as our numbers have grown over time, uh, our wealth has grown even faster. But then we reach a point where where we become so wealthy and so self satisfied, and and I guess so self centered. That we're not willing to provide for the future in the most fundamental way by providing a future generation, and especially in Europe, where you have uh, cradle-to-grave welfare states, where you have uh, countries that, uh, that that are run on the socialist idea that the government has has uh, has to take over all of the functions of the family. Um, once you do that, it's kind of a recipe for for a slow collective suicide because the birth rate drops down in spain and italy now it's at one point one the italian population the spanish population will be cut in half in a generation then cut in half after that it doesn't take long at that rate for entire peoples to disappear
1: What's short-sighted about that, if not out-and-out crazy in this whole mindset, is that if you are going to have the government support you and you're going to have all these government programs, you have to have a population to pay into the government so that it can give those programs. But if you don't have a population that will pay into it, how are you going to fund it?
2: Oh, absolutely. It's crazy. That's the double bind that young uh, European couples are in right now. Because of the high cost of maintaining the socialist welfare state, tax rates in Europe are over 50%, 55%, 60%. Young couples look at each other and and see the state taking almost two-thirds of their income and say, uh, we can't afford to get married, much less uh, afford to have children. And so if they have children, they have one or at most two. And so, in effect, the the European uh, governments are eating the seed corn of Europe's future. They're taxing young couples at such a high rate that young couples aren't uh, reproducing. And uh, therefore, ultimately, uh, the whole system is untenable. The whole system is unsustainable. It will age and die.
1: That's one of the things that helps America, isn't it, among others, that we do have a tax system that, unlike in those other countries, supports at least having some children. Well,
2: it does. Uh, We... uh, we we're very exceptional in, in a number of ways, and there are two ways that, that make us more baby-friendly than Europe or Japan or Korea or any other developed country. All the developed countries except America have have uh, too few babies to maintain the current population. Uh, we are now back at replacement. We're having an average of 2.1. That's true for all groups, uh, mm-hmm. red, yellow, black, and white, Native Americans, uh, black Americans, uh, uh, white Americans, Asian Americans, all are averaging about 2.1 children. Why? That's the big question. And, and one answer to that is that, that uh, in 1994, uh, the Congress passed a tax credit of $1,000 per child for every child under the age of 16. Uh, when you're filing your income taxes, you get a $1,000 tax credit. They also increased the standard deduction from where it had languished at $600 a year up to... Uh, you know, over $4,000 a year. So that means that couples in the United States of modest income and two or three children do not have to pay any income tax. Mm -hmm. And they shouldn't, because they're investing in the future of America by raising future taxpayers. And to make them pay income tax in addition to the cost of raising children is, in my view, unjust. It's a form of double taxation. I mean, I think we should go further. We should shelter young couples who have children paying social security because they're raising future payers into social security and if we did that we would be able to bump up the birth rate further
0: you're listening to spirit mornings with bruce mcgregor and chris mcgregor here at spirit catholic radio kvss Online with us this morning, Stephen Mosher, author of the book Population Control, Real Costs, Illusionary Benefits.
1: Stephen, we talked about how countries that have a high education rate and a prosperity rate are kind of, I hate to say it, cutting their own throats by this attitude towards controlling their population. But the third world countries are even beginning to have a devastating population growth or lack thereof. And it's because those stronger countries have forced them into this position.
2: Well, it is. You know, we, we became alarmed, um, uh, I think not did we in the United States, but the West in general and Japan, the developed countries in Asia, became alarmed at the fact that our birth rates were falling in the 60s and 70s, especially after Roe versus Wade. I mean, we lost a third of each generation. Something mm. like that. Uh, and and birth rates in in the uh, developing world were still were still higher, and so we set out to to manipulate, to orchestrate a drop and to engineer a drop in the birth rate in the developing world. And we would go into countries that, for the most part, were dictatorships, and we would say to the dictator, "Your problem here is not that you don't have the rule of law. Your problem here, and with poverty, is not because." Uh, you're corrupt or your officials are corrupt or because you don't have property rights, you don't hold free elections. Your problem is that your people are having too many babies, and that forces you to build roads and schools and and other things that otherwise you wouldn't have to if you would force the birth rate down. And I must say this this must be music to a dictator's ears because it relieves him of all responsibility for the problems of his country and enables him to shift the blame onto the people, especially onto the women and young couple. And, uh, and that's what we've done in country after country. We've said, if you want to stop poverty, if you want to protect your environment, if you want economic development, then you have to stop uh, your people from having so many babies. And that's the wrong solution to the wrong problem. Because people are an asset. Uh, every baby that comes into the world will, will yeah, it produce more than he or she consumes over his or her lifetime. Um, And so when you start eliminating um, productive assets like that, you're not making yourself wealthier. uh, You're making yourself poorer.
1: Stephen, I am, and Bruce as well, probably indicative of our listening audience who grew up in the 60s and 70s. And I remember seeing films in that period in grade school and middle school, high school, about overpopulation that by the time we would even reach 2010, that we would be so crowded, Mm -hmm. there would be no place for us to go, there would be food shortages, there would be all these problems because of overpopulation, and we needed to control the population. And that was fostered in large part by a man that you mentioned, Paul Ehrlich. Mm -hmm. Tell us the effect of that thinking and how wrong it truly was.
2: Well, you know, that thinking came from an orchestrated campaign within the U.S. government, because In 1970, President Richard Nixon appointed a a population commission. He appointed John D. Rockefeller III to head the commission. Rockefeller had already at that point made up his mind that overpopulation was, was a bigger threat than anything else facing the United States. He came back two years later with a report advocating the legalization of abortion, advocating a national population plan for the United States, and advocating a widespread propaganda campaign to convince American young people uh, to stop having children, at least in, in any number. Well, Nixon wouldn't go along with the with the abortion recommendation. The Supreme Court actually uh, did that on its own authority uh, a year later, and he didn't go along with limiting the U.S. population to 170 million because that was the recommendation. This Rockefeller Commission. It said uh, our population of 170 million. This is a quote: is already a big burden on our economic development and we need to restrict further growth. Uh, that would have been a district if, if that policy had been adopted. Nixon didn't want anything to do with it, but he did adopt the population propaganda aspect. And so the Department of Education, uh, at that time Health, Education, and Welfare, began to insist that textbooks in biology, in the social sciences, in history, mention the danger of the population bomb, mention the population explosion. Uh, videos were produced, films were produced that were shown in classrooms. You saw some of those. Mm -hmm. I saw some of those. And that propaganda, that anti-people propaganda, is still in the schools today, uh, misleading a lot of American youngsters into thinking that, well, people who have large families are being irresponsible. Mm -hmm. Uh, People who are responsible, socially responsible, uh, limit their families to to one or two children. And that's nonsense. Uh, The socially responsible thing to do, uh, the thing that helps families strengthens families, strengthens communities, strengthens economies, is to have children, not to avoid having children. And yet the whole message of the last two generations to school kids has been precisely
0: the opposite of the truth. Yeah. Now, Stephen, when you were mentioning that, I was uh, having a little bit of a mini flashback here myself to the uh, public service announcement campaigns and stuff that were going on in the time, and everyone might remember the acronym ZPG, the Zero Population Growth. I mean, they were just inundating everybody over the airwaves and on the radio and stuff with the whole notion of the zero population growth at that point in time.
2: And, and you know what? Zero population growth is a myth as well. Mm-hmm. They imagined, or maybe they didn't imagine, maybe they just were, were were misleading the rest of us, that when birth rates fell, they would naturally stop at two children per couple. They imagined that, that couples would, would naturally want to replace themselves, you know, uh a boy for you, uh, a girl for you, and a boy for me, and heaven help us if we have three. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That yeah. was their that was their belief. But there's nothing magical about zero population growth. The European countries, the developed countries of the world, went right through, fertility rate fell right through replacement rate, fertility, zero population growth, mm-hmm. and kept on falling. And it's still falling today. That's why I say that uh, uh, we haven't hit bottom yet. Uh, we may see societies uh, with with uh, with less than one child per couple on average. Of wow. course, we won't see them for very long because in a couple of generations, they will have extinguished themselves.
1: Mm-hmm. One land that you are intimately familiar with, China had a one child per family, essentially a quota, for couples to attain to. And we've seen how disastrous that has been for them, not only in how they tried to enforce this, but just the devastation that it can have on the land. I'm, I'm recalling, Stephen, the recent earthquake and the town where they lost all these children when the school collapsed. And for many of those couples, it would be the only child they would ever have and it has really hurt China and the world tremendously, hasn't it?
2: Oh, it has. I mean, uh, I was the first American scholar on the ground in China. I hit the ground in China in 1979, just about the same time that the Chinese Communist Party was instituting the one-child policy. So I was, I'm intimately familiar with how the policies carried out by means of forced abortion, forced sterilization, forced contraception. The earthquake was a tragedy, of course, for China, but it was a particular tragedy for those couples who lost only children and a lot of only children were lost because many of the schools collapsed they collapsed because they were poorly constructed and uh... not very many government office building collo- buildings collapsed the bureaucrats were safe but the children were not because uh, the bureaucrats had skimped on the mm-hmm. construction of these schools um, the government then a couple of weeks later, after an indecent interval of a couple of weeks, announced that couples who'd lost only children could go on to have makeup children. Hmm. And I thought to myself, no, they can't, because most of the couples who had only children were subsequently sterilized and will right. not be able to have additional children at all. So it's almost a mockery for the government to say, go ahead and have another child when that same government five years ago or ten years ago actually sterilize them so they can't have any more children.
1: There is one person's name who came up in the book that it surprised me and the influence that he had through his position as president of the World Bank and how it has hurt so many countries and his mindset. Of course, I'm speaking about Robert McNamara, a name who many uh, children of the 60s and 70s will remember as the secretary of defense who did not do well in Vietnam. I had no idea the influence that the World Bank has had on this issue.
2: Well, it, it has, and it's had a tremendous influence because uh, the World Bank is the lender of first resort for developing countries. When If you are a, a poor country and you need money at a low interest rate, or even free, uh, build a road or build a hydroelectric plant or, or whatever, an infrastructure project, the World Bank is the first organization you turn to uh, to, to get money. Um the World Bank in 1968, under Robert McNamara, dramatically changed its direction. It set up within its walls a separate, segregated, 500-person population control agency, the Population Division. And when I say segregated, I have friends who work in the other parts of the World Bank, and they can't, they can't access information from the Population Division. It is a secret, or a secret, even within the World Bank. Um, And and the World Bank made as a condition of loans that you had to have a population control policy in place. You had to have a fertility reduction policy in place. So if you want the loan, uh, if you're a third world leader, you want a loan to build that road, uh, you have to have a family planning program in place before the World Bank will give you money. So it used its tremendous economic clout, its tremendous leverage over the developing world to force countries that were basically buried... Pro-family, very pro-life, into adopting anti-natal policies, mm-hmm. and and of course that that leads to what? That leads to human rights violations.
1: And now there are those out there who are thinking right now. I'm sure, Stephen, they need to reduce their population. They can't feed themselves. They're in poverty. They have to reduce this. What would your answer be to them?
2: Well, I mean, look, most most human beings uh, throughout most of human history were in poverty. <laughs> and to scramble for a living. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're we're an exception over the last few decades, uh, last hundred years, because uh, of industrialization and, and modernization. But we know this. We know that, that economic development is the most effective contraceptive ever invented, that once people ur- were urbanized, moved to the cities, once they modernize, once levels of education go up, once people start working in factories and in service industries, their birth rate drops to very, very low levels. So anyone who's concerned about poverty and underdevelopment in mm-hmm. the third world, the right way to go about it is to stimulate economic development through the rule of law and property rights, free elections, free press, and so forth. And once that happens, the birth rate drops naturally. In fact, the birth rate may drop too far under that situation. Um, people are not robots. You know, uh, most couples do not set out to have as many children as they are biologically capable of having. Um, and if, if people do, more power to them. I mean, I think they're bringing blessings into the world. Mm-hmm. But most people don't do that. Most people in the in, in societies around the world want to have enough children so that two or three survive to adulthood. Mm-hmm. And in a poor society, with high death rates, you have to have six or seven children in order to have two or three of those children survive infancy survive childhood to adulthood and support you in old age and so if you go in and you artificially reduce the birth rate uh, you know you're not you're not convincing uh, these people to voluntarily have fewer children you're forcing them to have fewer children but if you went in instead and provided basic health care and reduced the infant mortality rate reduced the child mortality rate most people would stop having uh, so many children, because they would see that the children they did have were surviving and would be with them in old age.
1: One of the side effects, and for lack of a better way of saying it, that the, the World Bank and these population control entities has had has been a definite impact on health programs in these third world countries. I'm going to read a quote out of the book. You said that when the history of the AIDS epidemic is written the population controllers, and those who fund them will go down as the chief villains of this dark page in human history. Do you want to break that open for us?
2: Well, in developing countries, uh, health care is in short supply. Uh, doctors are scarce. Uh, nurses are scarce. Most of the doctors and nurses in, in countries like Peru in Latin America or in Nigeria in Africa uh, work for the government health service. Then you have the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund and the U.N. Population Fund and our own aid agency going to that Ministry of Health and saying, right now uh, you do uh, lots of malaria prevention programs and inoculation programs and so forth. You provide primary health care. But we think that's not important. What's important is for you to control your population. and We will give you generous funding if you embark on a nationwide sterilization program or a nationwide program to distribute uh, uh, abortifacient contraceptives and in fact if you don't do what we say we will take away the money that we're already giving you mm-hmm. and so the Ministry of Health goes along with the program because it really has no choice uh, uh, or it'll see its budget uh, uh, cut so so when that happens doctors and nurses are taken out of the business of of preventing malaria and preventing tropical diseases and lowering rates of typhus and typhoid and worrying about public sanitation and so forth and put into the business of doing sterilizations uh, administering contraceptives and and doing in many cases abortions when that happens death rates from other diseases from preventable diseases goes up and sometimes goes up very very strongly there were during a sterilization campaign in peru a few years ago 300,000 women were sterilized Mm. A few died from sterilizations, but many more people died. About 10,000 people died from malaria and cholera and typhus and typhoid, which suddenly came back after having been controlled because they came back because no one was paying attention to them. All the people who would have been providing the health care to prevent those diseases and save those lives were in the business of population control. Mm. Mm.
1: In regards to the AIDS situation, I thought that the book was extraordinary in how you chronicled how, for many of us, we think that the AIDS virus, this big epidemic that's happening in in Africa, is because of heterosexual sexual activity, and that that was the primary reason why this was spreading. And you point out in the book that in Africa, they are, are really no more promiscuous in the relations than we are in America. Because if, if it were true, then America would have a higher AIDS population. But there was something else that has been underreported as one of the reasons why there is this epidemic of AIDS in Africa.
2: Well, you've got many, many family planning clinics, population control clinics in Africa, uh, giving injections of Depo-Provera, uh, giving injections for, for other for other things, uh, doing things like implanting more plants, uh, doing the sterilizations, and the problem is, these are invasive procedures, and they're procedures that, uh, that can carry the disease into the bloodstream of someone who is otherwise, you know, not sexually active.
0: Well, Stephen, all of this has been very, very mind-boggling. Of course, we're talking about your book, Population Control, Real Costs, Illusionary Benefits. And I know for myself and Chris, as we've been listening to this and, and hearing about all of these population controllers and how everything over the course of time has really taken into this whole notion of population control and death that's going on out there. For people listening, what can we do to really put an end to all of this? I mean, how do we get some of this back?
2: Well, you know, uh, we've made some progress over, over the last seven years of the Bush administration. Uh, we have uh, denied $270 million from going to the UN Population Fund. Uh, that was a result of investigations that we at the Population Research Institute carried out in China some years ago. That money has gone, instead of going to the war on babies, it has gone instead to stopping sex trafficking, to primary health care, to child survival program. So that's a victory. Uh, We've also managed to prevent money from going to overseas organizations like IPPF that uh, promote and perform and lobby for the legalization of abortion everywhere in the world. And we're very close in Washington to to costing Planned Parenthood its $300 million a year taxpayer subsidy. Um, A dozen more votes in the House of Representatives, and that money uh, will go up in smoke Uh, But, of course, a lot rests on the elections in November. I think we have a clear choice between a pro-life candidate and a candidate who is unabashedly uh, pro-abortion. And it's very important that the candidate of life win.
0: We've been talking this morning with Stephen Mosier, author of the book Population Control, Real Costs, Illusionary Benefits. And, Stephen, uh, before we wrap up our all-too-brief time here together, uh, any final thoughts or observations that you'd like to uh, bring forward here as we close?
2: Well, you know, the the war on people was born in a kind of dark fear of people in the developing world having too many children. I think I think if we appeal to the best angels of our nature, that that we will see that uh, that babies are blessings and not burdens, and that, uh, and that uh, we we ought to encourage pronatal attitudes.
0: All right, amen to that. Stephen Mosier, everyone, again, the book called Population Control, Real Costs, Illusionary Benefits. And Stephen, again, thank you for being so generous with your time and uh, for this wonderful book. We want to encourage everyone to uh, pick up a copy. And uh, also to uh, visit the Population Research Institute website at www.pop, that's pop.org.
1: Stephen, again, thank you so much. God bless. Thanks for having me on the show.